Well, Gerald Bray is with us. Uh, he teaches over at Beeson. Uh, he splits his time between here and basically the rest of the world. Uh, just this year, you have taught in Australia, Southeast Asia, South Africa, and England. Anywhere else? Birmingham. And Birmingham. <laughs> and Birmingham. So. All these third world places. All, the, all these third world. <laughs> well, let's pray for Dr. Bray because <clears throat> we need it. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling uh, laborers into your vineyard. And Lord, we give you great thanks for the saints uh, whose shoulders we stand upon, uh, especially those uh, involved uh, at the time of the Reformation and putting your gospel uh, back uh, in its uh, rightful and uh, uh, place of proclamation. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, reform us and that uh, we might be made more like unto you. And Lord, that you would use us as you did uh, those men and women of old for our good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thank you, Dr. Bray. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all for coming out this morning. It's nice to be here. I was originally down to come last week as well, but uh, I couldn't get out of the house because of the ice. I mean, we were iced in. But uh, it's lovely to be with you. I want to just share with you some thoughts about the Reformation. As Andrew pointed out in the service this morning, and as I'm sure you know from other sources, this is the 500th anniversary this year uh, of the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. And... Uh, it, is, it was an event, of course, which was to change the history of the world. Uh, 500 years uh, further on, uh, we can begin to appreciate this perhaps a bit more. But its beginnings, of course, were very humble and totally unexpected from a human point of view. It started with Martin Luther and in a very personal way. When Martin Luther was 19 years old, he fell off his horse uh, and, uh, in a thunderstorm, and he was miraculously, relatively unhurt. Uh, usually in those days, that kind of thing uh, would lead to death. But Martin Luther was spared, but it shook him up. Now, occasionally, this kind of thing happens. Uh, you know, I, I don't suppose many of you would have been thrown from your horse uh, but uh, you might have been in a car accident or something like that, the modern equivalent. Uh, and it does happen sometimes that you are miraculously spared uh, or feel that you're mir miraculously spared. And you wonder, uh, why has God done this? You see, why have I escaped uh, from what seemed to be almost certain death? But for most people who have these experiences, after a little while, uh, they fade away you know, and you go back to normal life. But Luther was different. Uh, for Luther, this experience never wore off. Uh, and uh, for the rest of his life, or at least he thought at the time for the rest of his life, uh, he uh, wanted uh, to uh, live for God. He felt he had been spared for a reason. But Martin Luther could not find in himself anything worthwhile. Uh, as he looked inside himself and said, well, why me? Why have I been spared? He didn't know the answer to that. And he entered a monastery, which was the thing that people did in those days. If you got religious, uh, you were put behind bars. Uh, and uh, that was a monastery uh, and so on. Uh, nowadays, you go to divinity school. But then, um, you know, you went into uh, a monastery. And 
uh, he spent his time there. He went for a specific reason because he felt that in the monastery he could get closer to God. Uh, he could find out, he could put right what he felt was wrong uh, in his life. Uh, and Luther went through all the monastic disciplines that there were because monastic life is not an easy one. Uh, it was a life of uh, self-denial. It was a life of flagellation. He would, he would lie on the floor, a uh, cold stone floor, you know, naked all night uh, and so on. He'd beat himself. He'd do all kinds of things to try to get rid uh, of this evil, this thing that was inside him that he felt was blocking his way to God. And so much so, in fact, uh, that the abbot of the monastery was upset with him because the abbot of the monastery felt this, this guy is a fanatic. He's going too far. Uh, you know, he's going to kill himself by doing this. And uh, the abbot was so worried, in fact, that Luther was going to overdo it um, that uh, when the new university at Wittenberg was established, which wasn't too far away from where uh, the monastery was, and they needed a professor of New Testament, uh, the abbot suggested that Martin Luther should go and do that. Uh, and basically, it was one of those things. He wanted Luther uh, to stop punishing himself in the way that he was. And I suppose, although he would never have said it, he wanted to get rid of somebody who was just being a bit of a nuisance in the monastery itself. I mean, you don't say things like that, do you, when you write the reference? But that's what lies behind it. Um, anyhow. Martin Luther, by being made professor of New Testament, uh, of course, had to read the New Testament. This may come as a surprise to people today uh, when they're made professor of New Testament, never think of reading it. But, uh, but Martin Luther had to do that. And of course, you only really learn something um, when you have to teach it. You know, uh, you have to read every word and you have to have ads, you have to know what you're saying. And so Martin Luther sort of poured over the New Testament, and he came to see that the, the, what the New Testament was saying was something that he had never really heard before. Uh, and the message that was coming through as he read, particularly as he read Romans and he read Galatians, and he had to lecture on Galatians and so on, he came to see uh, that uh, a person is put right with God not by doing things, not by you know, doing all these exercises and so on that they were there in the, uh, in the monastic discipline, but by faith, by trusting in God, because God had sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for you and for me, to do something for you and me that we cannot do for ourselves, which is pay the price for our sins. And for Luther, this came, uh, you know, this was, this was like a, a revelation from heaven. It was just a, what he called later his tower experience, you know, something that just suddenly shook him and he realized, he understood for the first time what the Christian faith was all about. Now, Luther kept quiet about that. And the reason he kept quiet about it was that he was embarrassed. And he was embarrassed not because he had discovered this in the New Testament, but because he thought that this was something everybody else knew and that he was the only one who didn't, hadn't figured it out. 
you know. Of course, he was the professor, supposedly, but that's nothing new. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he hadn't sort of figured this out, and uh, it, it was kind of embarrassing. I mean, how do you stand up and say, oh, yes, well, now I understand what you all know, and you've all known all the time, uh, you know, and it suddenly hit me. But gradually, of course, this entered into Luther's teaching, it entered into his thinking, and so on. What Luther didn't realize, but found out in due, uh, as time went on, was that in fact, he had found something in the New Testament that very few other people had understood. That was the shock uh, that came to him. You see that he wasn't uh, uh, finding out what other people already knew. Uh, he wasn't the odd one out in that sense. He was the odd one out because he had discovered this uh, and other people didn't really understand what he was talking about. Now the issue came to a head when it became public uh, was when the Archbishop of Mainz, this great city in Germany, he was a great uh, Prince Bishop of Germany at that time, uh, fell into debt. Now it's the thing about bishops, they're always asking for money. And, um, and he was in this position, you see, how was he going to finance his uh, various operations uh, and so on. And uh, he hit on the idea of asking the Pope uh, if he could launch a campaign, uh, to raise a fundraising campaign, uh, which uh, would uh, be uh, achieved by selling indulgences. Now indulgences are something that are very hard for us today to understand. But what this meant was uh, that uh, an indulgence is basically time off in purgatory. And purgatory was a, a place where you went after you died if you weren't good enough to get to heaven. See, the, the, the church was teaching that there are a few people uh, who manage in life to be good enough uh, that when they die, they go straight to heaven. These are the saints, all right? But most of us aren't good enough for that. Most of us die in debt, you see, in spiritual debt. And so what are you going to do? Well, of course, the alternative to heaven was hell. But that's not a very uh, tempting prospect for most people. The church can't really, you know, hold that out to you as your, your future. And so uh, they came up with a compromise. They invented this place called purgatory, which is where you paid off your debt of sin after you died. Now, you may think, of course, that this is a terrible thing, but actually, purgatory, if the alternative is hell, um, purgatory was, was, was a, a, a merciful thing because the exit was heaven. You know, it might take you a long time to get there because some people, as you know, are slow learners and it takes them a while. Uh, but, uh, but you know, whether it takes you a short time or a long time, eventually you're going to get there because you can work off the debt of your sin after your death. You get a second chance in that way. So purgatory was a good thing in a way. But of course, it was also suffering. And uh, the church, you see, never at a loss for these things, said, well, there are ways of lessening this, you see. Uh, you might, in theory, have to spend several million years in purgatory, uh, but you can cut this down uh, by 
overdoing it on Earth. Now, what's overdoing it on Earth? Well, if you commit a sin, you see, on Earth, and you go to the priest and you confess your sin, and your, the priest says, well, you must say ten Hail Marys, let's say, uh, you know, and hold a lighted candle barefoot in the snow or something like that, uh, you say, well, I'm going to hold two candles barefoot in the snow, and I'll say 20 Hail Marys, and sort of chalk up the extra, you know, as time off in purgatory, sort of count it against this, you see, uh, some later stage. Well, that's fine, you see, if you do that. But you know, the church doesn't really want a whole lot of people standing outside doing silly things like this, you know. And most people don't really want to do that because it's embarrassing. So how do we solve this problem? Well, of course, you solve this problem by paying for it. Now, we do this, of course, today. You see, if you get a speeding ticket or a parking ticket or so on, I mean, theoretically, you should go to jail or do community service or something like that. But this is a nuisance. People don't want to do that. And, and, and of course, the state doesn't really want you to do that either. So it's much easier just to pay a fine. All right? And so this was equivalent, really, to paying a fine and sort of clearing your account uh, in this way. And this is what, the, this is what uh, the sale of indulgences was there to do. You see, whether people had, had actually sinned in a particular way or not, uh, you could go and buy these things, you see, or at least get these things, so that they could count as credit on your, on your account so that when you sinned uh, in a particular way, you would know, you'd be able to say, well, look, I've got an indulgence, and you know, that lets me off so many hundreds of years in purgatory, I don't have to worry about it. Well, this was a brilliant idea, of course, for fundraising. And lots of people, oh yeah, lots of people would go and buy these things, and they get a little certificate, you see, that they could hand. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like you go to Walmart or something, and you get this thing saying, you know, ring this number, and you, uh, 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 and you, you get a free something or other next time you come. Well, it's that kind of thing. You see, you could have this certificate. You could keep it uh, on hand in case of need. But Luther, you see, when he saw this, when he re realized this was going on, said, this is not right. This is not right because these people are trying to buy their way into heaven. It's understandable in a way that individuals might want to do that, but for the church to collude in this, you see, this was the problem. It wasn't that people, individuals, were, you know, had the wrong idea particularly. It was that the church was allowing this. The church was teaching this. The church was actually making money out of this. And Luther said, this is entirely wrong. This is not what the gospel message is. You see, this is not what they should be doing. And so Luther composed, he sat down and he wrote 95, what are called 95 theses. Now, lots of people know about the 95 theses, but hardly anybody has ever read them. And the three people who have don't understand them <laughs> uh, because they don't understand the context, you see. But basically, what Luther was saying is, very clever, he said, who does the Pope think he is to be able to let people off uh, time that they're supposed to be doing in purgatory? Purgatory is beyond his jurisdiction. You see, 
The Pope is head of the church on earth, but once you die, you move into another jurisdiction. You see? It's kind of like, uh, would you appeal to the governor of Alabama, you see, for something or other when you've moved to Florida, which is what you do when you die? Um, uh, you know, or, or, or are heading that way, you know? And, <laughs> and you think to yourself, well, well, it's no longer valid. You see, you've moved, you're out of state, you've gone to another place. And this is what, this was Luther's complaint, you see, initial complaint. And then, of course, he moved from there to say, well, uh, how does he know, how do you calculate this? You see, how do you know uh, how much a sin is worth? Uh, and so on. I mean, who has done all this? You see, where does this come from? Uh, the grace of God is free. The grace of God is given to us in Christ. If Christ has died to pay the price for our sins, why do we have to pay them off after we've died? Uh, he has done it for us. See, and suddenly the whole edifice, the whole uh, structure collapses in Luther's mind. You see, that's where it begins. He realizes that this whole thing is wrong. Now, to simplify it slightly, but to put it in a way that you can understand what, I, what it's all about, what Luther realized was that Jesus Christ had come to die not so much for sins as things, but for sinners as people. To die for you and me, rather than for what we have done. Now, if you think about this, you see in a minute, if you think of Jesus dying for sins as things, as opposed to uh, people, of course you could say, well, he's died for the sins that I've committed already. Well, that's fine. And you can ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. But what about the sins that you're going to commit tomorrow, you see, or the day after, and so on? Has he died for them? Well, you haven't committed them yet, you see? Uh, so uh, how, what does this mean, you see? How, how do you calculate? And of course, this was the basis on which the church had developed uh, the, the whole system of indulgences and purgatory and so on, because there was always something more, you know, that hadn't been covered. Uh, and so you have to cover it in this particular way. But if he dies for you as a person, as opposed to for what you have done or not yet done, uh, then you belong to him more or less regardless of what you have done. Now, this does not mean to say, of course, that uh, he, God is indifferent to our sins. Of course not. He sent his Son into the world to die for us, to die for these things. But if we are united to Christ, you see, if we are joined to him in a relationship of faith, this justification by faith, as it, we're, we're taught uh, uh, in theology, then our sins are paid for. They're counted uh, for. We don't have to do it for ourselves because he has done it for us. You see, we are set free from this. And this is why Luther could say that it was possible to be a sinner, but at the same time be just or righteous in the sight of God. And this was the thing that people couldn't understand. Because they thought, well, either you're righteous, which means you're perfect, or you're a sinner, but you can't be both. And Luther said, yes, you can. You can because this is, you are tied to Christ. You are not righteous in yourself. You haven't done anything in yourself uh, to do this, but he has done it for you. 
Now this teaching, as I say, came across, it was very difficult for a lot of people to grasp. A lot of people, including quite intelligent people, never really got it. Luther had a lot of opposition. But he also uh, touched a nerve uh, in quite a number of people uh, to whom he preached. They suddenly woke up. They realized that what he was saying was true, that what he was saying uh, was, uh, was in the Bible, that this is what the scriptures were teaching. And of course, at this time, you see, when Luther uh, was, was getting going, 1517, around then, printing was a new technology. Uh, and for the first time, ordinary people could actually afford to buy a Bible. Luther translated the Bible to make it easier for people to read. There were Bibles, of course, around, but they were mostly in Latin, um, which, of course, sounds to us like a problem. But in those days, if you went to school, you knew Latin, so it wasn't such a big problem. Uh, but still, he produced it in, in, in his own language, in German, so that ordinary people could read. And it hit, it hit them uh, with a force uh, you know, that was previously unknown. Now, Germany at that time uh, was divided into lots of little principalities and so on. It wasn't a united country in the way that it is now. Um, and uh, this worked to Luther's advantage in a way uh, because the, the prince of the territory in which Luther uh, lived, the, the, the man, in fact, who had started the University of Wittenberg, um, was behind him, uh, supported him, I'm not so sure that the, that the prince who supported him really understood what Luther was saying, but he did understand that, that, that Luther was preventing his subjects from giving money to the pope. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a good thing, you know. In other words, the tax revenue was staying at home. Um, so uh, he didn't have to build a wall to prevent people from going to Rome. Uh, you know, he could, he could keep the money at home, and, uh, and so he supported him for that reason. I mean, this is a difficult one, you see. Uh, the, the secular rulers who supported Luther, it's not always entirely clear that they understood what Luther was doing or why, uh, but they realized that there was something going on here that was to their advantage, and so they supported him. Anyhow, uh, to make a long story short, Luther got a lot of support like this. And within a few years, uh, all over Germany, uh, there were people who uh, had thrown off uh, the, uh, the, the control, the power of the medieval church, uh, and had declared themselves followers of Luther. Now, as I say, this was not an easy thing, because not all the followers of Luther were genuine followers of Luther. Uh, some of them were taking advantage of the, uh, of the circumstances. Um, others, of course, had no idea what they were doing. They just went with the flow. Uh, and others uh, objected, I mean, because there, there was opposition. And so what may have seemed initially uh, to be a clear and obvious thing that everybody would accept, in fact, uh, led to trouble, it led to war, uh, and so on, and it led to division. Uh, but in Germany, this, was, this, this could be contained because of all these little principalities and states and so on, which were semi-independent. And so in the end, 
what they did was they said the ruler of each little principality, each little state, must decide whose side he was on. Either he was on the side of Luther or he was on the side of the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, and that would be the position of the little state in which uh, he lived. And if you didn't agree, like if you, have, if you happen to land up in a place, and remember these little states were small, uh, I mean something the size of Jefferson County or something like that, Shelby County, but let's say, we put it in Alabama terms, let's say Jefferson County went with the Protestants and uh, uh, Shelby County went with the Catholics and you lived in the wrong county, you know, you were a Protestant living in Shelby County, you were given permission to move. Uh, there would be an exchange of population so that you could go to live in the place where the ruler supported the views that you held. And this created a more stable situation in Germany. It wasn't so easy, though, uh, when uh, the Reformation spread beyond this. You see, the Germans could sort of sort this out. But uh, in other countries, like France, for instance, France didn't work like that. Uh, France was a more centralized country. But uh, the influence of Luther and his teaching spread there. Uh, and it spread particularly among the upper class. And you say, well, why? Well, because they were the ones who knew what was going on outside the country. They were the ones with the contacts, you know. Uh, they, they could read the books, they, could, they, they knew what was happening. And so it would come in this way, uh, and people would meet for study, uh, to study Luther's writings uh, and so on, uh, and figure out what was going on. And there was a lot of attraction towards Luther's views uh, among a certain group of people, more or less upper class people <coughs> in France. One of the people who was attracted by this uh, was uh, a young man called John Calvin. Uh, Calvin was not uh, a monk. Uh, he was not a theologian in any sense. He was a lawyer. You know, so of course, uh, sin came naturally to him. <laughs> and um, you, you might say, uh, but, uh, or he, he, he knew a lot about it. And, um, and he sort of found that he was in Paris studying law and it was sometime then, we don't really know what happened, but he came into contact with these uh, Lutheran people uh, and he was persuaded by them. He was converted. Uh, but then somebody, we don't know who, somebody went too far uh, and they published notices all around Paris, including on the king's, in the king's palace, on his bedroom door apparently. Um, you know, sort of the Pope is an ass and the, and, and the church is terrible and blah, 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 and you have to go away. Well, of course, uh, the king was very offended by this. I mean, not so much by what the, the poster said, but that somebody had managed to get that close to his bedroom to, you know, to post it on the door. How did they get past the guards and so on? Anyway, he saw this as a potential revolt uh, and uh, cracked down on these people. So he said, you can't do this. So Calvin and a number of other people like that uh, had to get out because they were suspect. You see, they were, they, were, uh, they were in trouble. So Calvin did. He left Paris and he went uh, to the south of France initially. Then he went to Italy uh, briefly. Uh, but uh, he, he decided that he needed to find out. He needed to study theology. Where was he going to do that? 
Well, the only place he could do that was somewhere in Germany. So he was going to make his way to Germany uh, to study uh, with a man called Martin Bootser, who uh, was a disciple of Luther and who uh, was leading the Reformation that introduced the Reformation in the city of Strasbourg. Well, Strasbourg, of course, is nowadays in France, but it was a German city at that time. And so Calvin was on his way there, but on his way he passed through Geneva, uh, which was a, an independent city-state at that time. And when he got to Geneva, he found that the Reformation had already come there because a local person in Geneva by the name of Farrell, William Farrell, uh, had uh, led a revolt and chased the bishop out. The bishop had run the city uh, before then, uh, but Farrell didn't really know what to do. You know, like a lot of rebels, he, he could revolt, but once you revolt, then what do you do? Uh, and so Calvin appears, and Farrell realizes that Calvin is, uh, you know, more intelligent than he is, um, and he begged Calvin to stay in Geneva and, uh, and, and implant the Reformation. Well, Calvin didn't want to do that because Calvin was heading to Strasbourg to study theology. Uh, and so Farrell said, well, God has told me, the usual excuse, you know, God has told me that you're supposed to stay here. And Calvin said, well, God hasn't told me that. <laughs> um, and so who was right, you see? Well, Farrell, it turned out, of course, because had the keys to the city gates. So he just locked them and prevented Calvin from leaving. So God was on his side. Um, and, uh, and Calvin sort of gave in. You know, he said, well, I guess I'm, you're not going to let me go, so I'd better stay here and, uh, and do as you ask, which is what he did. Well, Calvin, of course, had no, I mean, had no experience. He was a young man. He was only 26 or 27 years old. I mean, not very old at all. Uh, and had never done anything like this before. Uh, but he sort of sat down, and you, you know, when you're in your 20s, you know everything. So, um, I mean, he, um, uh, he sort of rewrote the city constitution of Geneva and told people what to do. Well, surprisingly, uh, the people of Geneva didn't buy that. You know, they weren't going to be told that they had to change their whole way of life just because this young Frenchman had come along and, and uh, you know, said, said what they had to do. So they threw Calvin out and Farrell, both of them, said, get out of here, you know, we don't want you. Well, for Calvin, this was, of course, a liberation, because now he could go to Strasbourg and study with Bootser. Don't ask me, I don't think anybody ever asked Martin Bootser whether he wanted Calvin. Calvin just sort of turned up, you know. Um, but anyhow, uh, they, they were thrown out of Geneva, so Calvin got his wish. He went to, Geneva, uh, to Strasbourg and studied with Martin Bootser. Now, Martin Bootser is a person no one's ever heard of, unless you're a specialist, in which case even fewer people have heard of him because you don't listen to specialists. Anyhow, um, but Bootser was an interesting person because uh, he wanted to get the best out of the Reformation. He, when Luther sort of pr produced his theses and so on, Bootser was one of the first people to read them, to, to take them on board, uh, and he got on his horse and went to Wittenberg and met Luther, one of Luther's very first supporters. But he also had contacts with another group of reformed people, Reformation people, in Switzerland uh, and uh, in Zurich, in the city of Zurich. And the, there the Reformation had been led 
by a different kind of person altogether, a man called Zwingli. And Zwingli is one of these, you kind of, with a name like that, you think that, you know, he was competing to have the last place in the phone book or something. Um, but anyhow, uh, there he was uh, in, the, in Zurich, uh, leading the Reformation there. And Zwingli was a completely different kind of person. He wasn't like Luther at all, uh, temperamentally and so on. His big issue uh, was not justification by faith, although he believed that. That wasn't his problem, but he, that wasn't the center of his thinking. It was more to do with the sacraments, because the church had been teaching that the sacraments were the way in which you received the grace of God, so that if you were baptized, you were made a Christian. That's what baptism made you a Christian. If you took the, the, the bread and wine at communion, you were receiving the body and blood of Christ into your heart and life. That was actually the real body and blood of Christ, uh, you know, that you were taking on board. So it was kind of, it acted like a kind of medicine uh, to heal you uh, from the disease of sin in your life. And Swingley said, that can't be right. You know, material things cannot achieve spiritual ends. I mean, our relationship with God in Christ is a spiritual thing. Uh, I mean, you can pour as much water as you like over somebody, that's not going to make them a Christian. Uh, you can hold them down and, you know, pour sort of consecrated wine and stuff them with, with consecrated bread. They're not going to get any closer to Jesus like that. So that's got to be wrong. So you can't do it like this. So Cal, uh, Swingley, of course, rejected this uh, and caused quite a stir in Zurich, you see, when he, he did this, because uh, it upset people's uh, religious practice, people who uh, were used to things like, you know, baptism and communion every week and so on, and went through the rituals, didn't really understand the theology behind it. Uh, so there was a lot of up and down there, but Swingley fought his way uh, through to this, um, even to the point of falling out with Martin Luther, because, of course, when Luther found out that there was these people in Switzerland who uh, were against the Pope, uh, he figured, well, you know, we must be on the same side. So they tried to come together uh, to form an alliance, but it didn't really work uh, because Luther's ideas of the sacraments and the places of the sacraments were not as radical as Zwingli's. You see, Luther had a higher view of the sacrament than, uh, than Zwingli did. And so although they, 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 weren't as, they weren't really enemies, people today say they, they, they fell out and they were enemies, they weren't really, uh, but... They, they, they realized they couldn't come together completely on this particular question. And this was something that bothered Martin Bootser, because Bootser wanted to bring the sides together. He wanted, it, he wanted to have uh, you know, a coherent, uh, reformed teaching that everybody could accept, whether they were followers of Luther or whether they were followers of Singley. And this was the, the, the atmosphere that Calvin uh, found himself in. This was the, uh, the teaching that he imbibed uh, during the three years that he spent in Strasbourg. And the theology that Calvin developed, that he, that he took over and that he wrote um, uh, down and so on, was really the theology of Martin Bootser. Um, why, do we hear, why do we know about Calvin and not about Bootser? Well, the first reason is that Martin Bootser never used one word when ten would do. 
um, you know, he was very prolix in it. I mean, he just went on and on. And uh, you could just see people going, at the end of this. That was one thing. Uh, another thing is he digressed very readily. So that, you know, if he was commenting, he has his commentary on Ephesians, for instance, the book of Ephesians, and somewhere down in the first chapter, it talks about predestination. Uh, and so Bootser, instead of moving on to the next verse, uh, stops and writes a whole treatise on predestination, which he then throws in at that particular point. So by the time you finish that, you've forgotten where you were. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a mishmash. I mean, it's not bad things, but it's just mixed up and all thrown together like this. Calvin was a genius because Calvin knew how to communicate, you see. His Institutes of the Christian Religion, which many people today think is very difficult and very hard to read, in his day was theology for dummies. It really was. Because, you see, he, he, he put it in a compact way, something you could, you could buy it, you could stick it in your saddlebag, uh, you know, take it with you uh, wherever you went, uh, which you couldn't do with most theologies of that time because they were, you know, multi-volume uh, things. Um, he packaged it. He, he was a great teacher. You see, he knew, how to, he, he knew how to communicate. And he had a vision for that. You see, while he was in Strasbourg, back in Geneva, the place fell apart. Be they kicked them out, but they didn't know what to do. So after two or three years, when everything was a real mess, they invited Calvin back again. And Calvin went back uh, to Geneva, which was kind of remarkable, uh, and spent the rest of his life there teaching uh, people. And Geneva became, it was a small place, but Geneva became a, a place of refuge. People all over Western Europe who were attracted to the Reformation, but found life difficult at home, went there, you know. Uh, they went there and they studied with him, they studied under him, they learned from him. And then Calvin's idea was not to keep them in Geneva. He wasn't trying to build a megachurch uh, in Geneva, but rather to send them back. You see, his idea was we can reach the whole of Europe this way. We'll send them back to France, we'll send them to Germany, we'll send them to Italy, we'll send them to Hungary, we'll send them anywhere we can send them uh, to go out and preach the word. You see, uh, give them an education, let them go. This was important because it was through this, uh, ultimately, that, that England and Scotland received the Reformation. Now, I know, of course, that we hear about the English Reformation in a different kind of way, that uh, the Germans and the French and the Swiss had theology, um, the English had sex and violence, <laughs> otherwise known as Henry VIII and his multiple wives. Um, but uh, although there is a truth in that, of course, the real Reformation in England occurred only when the theology uh, of the Reformation was implanted there. Who did this? Well, various people, but one of the people who landed up in England was Martin Bootser, believe it or not because Bootser was eventually driven out of Strasbourg, uh, and he landed up in England, and he was given a job in Cambridge, where he, he taught theology in the university. He lasted a year, and he died, because no one told him that Cambridge is a swamp. It is, and a very unhealthy place to live. 
um, and, and so on, and, and he died, and he, he was buried there, um, and so on. But, but this was the contact, this was the first contact that the English had, uh, really, with uh, continental reformed thinking. Uh, then, of course, a couple of years after that, uh, the tide turned in England, and Queen Mary I, or Bloody Mary as she's known, came to the throne and, and tried to uproot Protestantism uh, such as it was in England at that time, uh, and people left the country. Uh, and I won't go into this long story, uh, make, make a long story short, uh, a number of these exiles landed up in Geneva. Uh, and that's where they studied, they learned the Reformation for the first time. That's where they translated the Bible. Uh, the Bible had been already translated into English, but a scientific translation uh, was done in Geneva, called the Geneva Bible. Uh, the Geneva Bible was different from other ones because, first of all, it was based on the best manuscripts. Secondly, it was the first Bible to be published in English that had verses, so you could find out find where you were in the text, and it also had notes in the margin so that you could understand difficult things. Now, it's true, of course, that the translators of the Geneva Bible had a certain bias. That is true. So that when they came to the passages in the New Testament that talked about the Antichrist, they would put a note in the margin saying, this is the Pope. <laughs> you know, for, those, for those who hadn't noticed already. Well, they, they did have that bias, that's true. But uh, following Calvin, you see, and, and his way of thinking, um, they knew how to package what they were doing. They, the, the English Bibles that had existed before were these great folio uh, things that were meant for putting on the lectern in the church. You couldn't really have one in your house. Uh, well, I suppose you could, but I mean, you know, it would be awkward. Uh, and you certainly couldn't carry one around in your saddlebag. So what did they do? Well, they produced what would be the equivalent of the paperback version, uh, you know, a little thing like this that you could stick in your bag that everyone could afford uh, and had all these advantages uh, as well, like verses and notes and so on. And so the Geneva Bible became the most popular English Bible. It was Shakespeare's Bible. It was the Bible that the Pilgrim Fathers brought to America in 1620. I mean, Legend will tell you that this was the King James Bible, but it wasn't. Uh, King James Bible did exist in 1620, but that wasn't the Bible that the, the, the Pilgrim Fathers used. Uh, it was the earlier one, the Geneva Bible, that they brought with them. So that was the first Bible brought to this country, uh, you see, at that time. But the, the whole purpose of this, of course, was to spread the word, you see, to spread the word among the people. And this is where uh, it came from, this was the center, and this is how it disseminated itself. And then in different places, of course, it, effect, it, it, it took its effect to different degrees. Uh, in Scotland, uh, Scotland was a small country, it was in trouble at the time, the, the government was falling apart. Uh, the Scottish reformer John Knox was able to go there and introduce the Reformation without too much trouble. So he basically took over the country uh, and introduced the Reformation. So Scotland became a Protestant country more or less overnight. Uh, England was more problematic. It had an organized government uh, and so on. It was harder to, to penetrate in that way. They had to sort of balance things off 
uh, and so the English Reformation was more of a compromise. Uh, in France, uh, they managed to convert a lot of people, a lot of ordinary people uh, in France, but they never managed to get the king on their side. Uh, and therefore, uh, of course, the central government was always against this. Uh, and so in France, there, were, there was a generation of warfare between Catholics and Protestants. Um, in the end, uh, there was a kind of compromise that the, the king was Catholic, but the Protestants were tolerated. Uh, but that didn't work because uh, you couldn't. I mean, uh, Catholicism could not tolerate opposition like this. So the Protestants were gradually squeezed out uh, and eventually expelled from the country um, unless they converted back to Catholicism. Uh, and this is why, of course, many people uh, even today here uh, claim ancestry. They're, they're descended from French Protestants who were expelled. Um, a number of them landed up in Charleston, uh, where there is still, uh, to this day, a French Protestant church uh, from that time, uh, which survives, you see. So different countries, uh, it worked out in different ways. Um, but that is basically how the Reformation occurred uh, and uh, the effect that it had. Uh, the Lutherans, uh, just to end, I've got to finish now because it's, we're going on to the next service, uh, they split. They split into those who sided with people like Bootser, uh, and this included Luther's uh, right-hand man, a man called Philip Melanchthon, who sort of went that way, and the others who were more conservative, they didn't like this, uh, they, they were more, uh, you know, different kind of uh, uh, emphasis, and they became the Lutherans that we know today. And you see, the people we call Lutherans today uh, Went, they were sort of the right wing, if you like, uh, of the Lutheran Reformation, and the left wing sort of uh, merged with, the Cal with Calvin and Swingley and those people uh, into the Reformed tradition as we have it now. And they went north. They went northern Germany, Scandinavia, places like that, uh, and the others went west to, to Holland, to the British Isles, uh, to France, uh, and they are the ancestors, if you like, uh, of our kind of Protestantism. Uh, so whether you're a, an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian or a, whatever you are, Baptist, it doesn't really matter very much. Um, that we, we all come from that Western wing, if you like, uh, of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Well, there's a potted history for you. Uh, <laughs> I've got to stop. Um, but uh, by all means, uh, you know, come and ask me questions. And um, if you want an indulgence, I'm sure I can manage to sell you one. Uh, <laughs> and we'll see you again sometime. Thanks. <laughs>